We're going to start with John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Next we'll be reading out of Zechariah, verse 4, 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. Thank you. I was noticing the date today. Anyone notice the date? 7-Eleven. Does 7-Eleven still do free Slurpees today? I'm not saying you have plans after service, but I'm just saying. Well, today we are continuing our Apostles' Creed series. And today we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the simple statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking at today. You know, actually, we already had the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Creed, if you remember. A few weeks back, Brent preached on the conception and the incarnation of, of Jesus, so we've already been kind of introduced to the Spirit already, but we're definitely going to be getting more in depth. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about Jesus descending to the dead and, and rising again. You guys remember that one? Uh, and we focused on the idea of the supernatural realm and uh, sort of the implications of that reality and really trying to think about what that really meant uh, for us and what that means for us. And today we're going to kind of continue in the same sort of vein with the topic of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't really have a good discussion of the Holy Spirit uh, without acknowledging the reality of the spiritual. And in fact, we as human beings, we're both physical and spiritual beings. So to deny one part of that is sort of to not understand the whole, the whole of us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, the Holy Spirit, I mean... There are volumes written. There's, there's so much there, right? So, so obviously we're not going to 
can have a really exhaustive time, and you hope we're not going to have a really exhaustive time looking the Holy Spirit. So, as we begin, we're going to sort of be introduced to the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you are new to the faith or never really thought about it in a formulaic way. Um, not to say that you're uninformed on the Holy Spirit, but kind of wanted to just go through and we'll get a quick introduction to uh, who the Holy Spirit is. And, and as we walk through, we're going we're gonna to highlight a few of these things um, this morning. So, uh, a few things. Just this, this could be, a, you know, if you're taking notes, this is the quick facts section, right? This is a lightning round sort of thing. Holy Spirit is often called the third person of the Trinity. Not third person as in the Olympics, gold, silver, bronze came in third, not that, but just we have to state them in an in a order of some kind. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is regarded as the third person of the Trinity, but it doesn't mean that he is any less in power or authority or in position in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit showcases the presence of the power of God. We're gonna look at that. The Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Spirit is to draw the lost to the Lord. Part of that is also convicting of sin. It's another role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. Now, before the application of the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and the ministry was different to human beings. There was empowerment of human beings, but it wasn't quite the same as we see today. There wasn't a seal of humans or an indwelling. After the application of the blood of Jesus, we see an empowering and a sealing and an indwelling ministry of the Spirit. Uh, He illuminates God's word. So if you're a spirit-filled person, when you read God's word or hear God's word, it's illuminated to you by the Spirit. He's the come-alongside one. In theology, he's called the paraclete. He comes alongside. He's the comforter. It's one of his roles. It's one of the things that he does. He also makes holy. He sanctifies. And in doing so, helps us to put sin to death in our lives. And last but not least, he's responsible for the unity of the saints, whether it's only a couple of people, a church meeting together, or the church universal. It's the Holy Spirit that provides that that unity. And so again, as we walk through some of these things, we're not going to be exhaustive, and if we have not highlighted necessarily your favorite part or aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, it's not to say it's not important. I'm going to highlight a few things that I think are important for us to to really think about and kind of take with us. So uh, it's not to say that after today, there's nothing for you to look into. If you're interested, there's definitely lots of different scriptures we can point you to. Here are some books we could point you to 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 kind of help you think through some of those things. Um, But with all that being said, let's talk about the Spirit. So the first instance that we have of the Holy Spirit, anyone know? I'm sure you do. That's pretty early on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we actually have the... um, Appearance, the first appearance of the Holy Spirit. So verse two, the earth was out form was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As we read here, the Spirit's first instance in this in this world was to bring the power of God above the waters of chaos before the creation of the world. Basically, enabling creation to begin. And so the role of the Holy Spirit in presence was to bring that peace-bringing power 
to a place where creation would begin. It's a pretty, pretty amazing uh, thing to see first, but this, this peace and power of his presence, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. One major aspect of the Spirit is the sanctifying work of the sealing of the Spirit. So we're going to look at a couple different verses here. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A lot of us, as we read through epistles, kind of skip over the intro, but this is an important one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect uh, exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, <clears throat> according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is really neat because it employs all of the persons of the Trinity in this greeting here, but we see right here, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is a, just a fancy way of saying to make holy, to set us apart. Sometimes we chiefly think of holiness as being a, an aspect of moral purity, which that's definitely one aspect, but it's because the chief understanding of that word is to set us apart. And so setting us apart from the world, one of the uh, chief attributes of that is that we would be uh, morally and personally pure, ready for his service. And so that ministry of sanctification is a very, very important one. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this is one aspect of sanctification is actually the continual presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is given. When the Spirit is given, it is our seal. When God looks down to see us, he will see that we are marked, we are different. We are marked because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is an important Work. I like to think of that as it's the continual, there's the continual holying of God. And at the same time, when God looks at us, he can see that we're positionally holy before him. In fact, in the New Testament, it talks about believers as being saints. I don't know if you've read through First, Second Corinthians, but man, sometimes we saints can be, we can be strugglers, right? Sometimes it's not that easy. So we do have that seal of the Holy Spirit. It's our guarantee that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. Let's look at John chapter 16. One other aspect of this. This idea of sanctification is incredibly important in our lives. Making us holy, making us set apart for the work that God has for us, for the life that he has for us, even to the point where Jesus says this. So this is in the upper room. This is before Jesus uh, goes to, to suffer, and he says to his disciples something that I think probably was jarring, but if you look at verse, uh, verse seven, uh, John sixteen seven, he says, nevertheless I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Pause there for a second. That's a very weird thing for somebody to say, especially somebody that you're close to. So it's, it's better if I leave. But Jesus' point here is, is the coming of the Spirit. 
If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. There's that conviction thing. And righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. There we have a nice encapsulated idea of what the Holy Spirit is really coming into the world to do. And it's so important that Jesus actually says, it's better that I leave. So think about this. Have you ever thought about what it meant to be spending time with Jesus, to walk with him, to travel with him, to see how he interacted with people? Have you thought about what that's like? Anybody? Am I the only one? You read through the Gospels and you think, man, it would have been much easier to follow Jesus if he was here. I could listen to him. I could, you know, we could, we could, Interact in this different way. I, I actually think that Jesus probably has had, had and has a really great sense of humor. It would have been fun just hanging out with Jesus, right? Uh, just, to, just to see that and to see just him just being there, just kind of, um, just those, those nuggets of wisdom that just come along with just interacting with someone, those sorts of things. And yet all those different aspects in the actual presence of Jesus, Jesus says, it's better if I leave. Have you thought about that? The Holy Spirit that has been given to us as believers, it's better than if we were spending time with Jesus physically while he was here on earth in his ministry. Have you thought about that? I don't think we think about it enough. In fact, Acts chapter one, Jesus says, this is the resurrected Jesus, he says, hey, Y'all need to wait here until the Spirit comes. Even after the resurrection, they've seen him, they understand why he came, right? He highlighted things in the scriptures to his disciples. He told them all these different things. He, he said, you know what? Just wait. Why don't you wait until the Holy Spirit comes before you leave? Before you go do the things that I told you to do, just wait. Because the subtext of this, go back to John 16, it is better that the Spirit be here. So that tells you what Jesus thinks of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at John chapter four. John chapter four, we're gonna look at the, the presence of the powerful God. John chapter four, we're going to the passage that was read. Let's look at verse 19. Verse 19 this is the interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We've already read through it, so we don't have to read all the way through here. But she perceives he's a prophet because of their interaction. And she asks a question. This is a theological question of the day. She's a Samaritan. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped on what? The temple on Mount Moriah. So two different mountains. Depending on who you're talking to, they would have a theological debate on where is the appropriate place to worship. And so she's, oh, you're a prophet, let me ask you. Expecting him to give, give an answer. Possibly, think about, think about this. If, she, if he gave an answer to her that she didn't like, she may feel morally justified to disregard him. Oh, you're one of those prophets who thinks it's Jerusalem. Okay, I don't need to listen to you. We don't know, obviously. 
But what does he say to her? Something completely different. Hey, you know what? That's not the point. The point's not where the temple is. There's coming a time, and it's interesting, he says, and it's here now. But there's coming a time where you won't worship in either temple. Instead, you'll worship in spirit and in truth. Highlighting the fact that the future from when they were talking, and Jesus says, even now you can do this, that there was the ability to worship God wherever you are. Wherever you happen to go, you can worship. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We get the idea. We get sort of the, the, the apostles expounded on this idea and this concept. But it says, that, or you can read here, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's kind of a crazy thought. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are the temple. Think about this. Wherever you go, you bring what with you? If you are a believer, if you are indwelled by the Spirit, you bring the presence of God wherever you go. Nobody has to go to Mount Gerizim. Nobody has to go to Mount Moriah, to the temple. In fact, neither of those places have a temple anymore. Believers now bring the presence and the power of God. First Corinthians chapter six. So three chapters later, Paul brings it up again. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is interesting because we have the, the reality that we are a spiritual being, we interact in the spirit, and yet we are physical, we're to please God in our body. The Holy Spirit in us leads us to that. And honestly, if you think about this, when we all meet together, we meet together not just as individuals who have been bought with a price, but we meet as individuals who bring the presence of God with us. So there is something special and unique when the people of God get together because we bring with us the presence of God. And later it promises us that we will actually be the bricks in the temple of God. In heaven, obviously, it's metaphorical. I don't think we are going to be bricks. But the idea is, is that all of us coming together make up the temple. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Oftentimes, if we want to talk about the Spirit, we'll jump right here. But I feel like it's really important to have all those other pieces together before we start looking at this. But Galatians chapter 5 brings up, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the Spirit it's talked about in a way that I think a lot of times we, we kind of miss. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Remember that verse? Hang on to it. We'll come back to it in just a second. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. This is not to say that we're somehow bifurcated beings. We do have these two aspects 
of us, a physical and a spiritual that is a whole. But what's being pointed out, is it's talking about the desires, the inclinations, what's natural for us. Oftentimes when we say, well, I'm just doing what comes naturally, oftentimes what comes naturally to us is actually carnal. It's not appropriate for someone who is living by the Spirit. We need to put to death the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Then we get a list. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, envy and drunkenness and orgies and all things like these. In case they're left off the list, anything that's similar to these, go ahead and add them to the list, but then the list is too long, so there you go. These are all works of the flesh. In that list there, I think some would go like, oh yeah, that, that's work of the flesh, that's, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, and some of these would go, that's not that, that's, do these belong all in the same list? Is envy, should that be in the same place as sorcery? Sexual immorality, does that belong on the same list? Strife? Would we include that on this list? What's being pointed out is all these different actions, they're evidence of of the flesh. They're evidence of the desires of the flesh. What we get right after is another list. Um, He says, oh, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The concept there is not if, oops, I accidentally did it. Oops, I accidentally committed strife. I can't go to the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's not the point. The idea is here, those who practice these things. When we say practice, what do you, when you practice something, what are you doing? You are trying to get better and refine how you are accomplishing those things. Those who practice such things. So drunkenness, for example, you, if you practice drunkenness, I mean, you figure out ways to either get drunk faster, get drunk better. Is that a thing? I don't know. But right, it's people who practice that or, or do different things. Think about it. If you're a practitioner of such things, yeah, there's something else going on. It's not just the action. Then that's, that's something else going on inside. That's, that's, that's a heart thing. That's, that's an area to say, I just don't know if the spirit is in that person. It's an evidence of someone who's not potentially indwelled by the Spirit, those who practice such things. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, I'm sure you guys could even give me this list without reading it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's interesting, the line here, against such things there is no law. If you practice these things, there's nobody who's going to say, stop doing that. That's not good. It's, you're breaking the, breaking the law, baby, being gentle. Um, it doesn't happen. And, and, and just to bring this up, we're not going to have, there's, what, right, there's, there's a few things in the church. There's the great debates concerning the spirit. One of those is the spiritual gifts, which we will talk about in a second, but not going to have an exhaustive discussion. What's interesting is, is, is we will... Sometimes, as Christians or different groups of Christians, we'll sit and discuss the gifts, go back and forth and argue the gifts, the sign gifts, miraculous gifts, things like that. And yet, 
in that, in that discussion, they will be unloving and they will be unkind in how they discuss, and they'll, be, they'll get impatient having that discussion. And isn't that just the most ironic thing? That when you sit and you're having a discussion of the gifts of the Spirit for you to actually stop exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? And kind of the point is, Jesus brings this up. He doesn't say, look at the miraculous things that people do and that's how you'll know that they are my followers. What does he say? They'll know my disciples by their what? Their love for one another, which is the primary thing that's listed here, or it'll say you know them by their fruits. This is how you'll know. Just to throw it out there, there are plenty of spiritual things going on in the world where someone can exhibit lots of different miraculous looking things. But you can't fake the fruit of the Spirit. Not for long. You will eventually be found out. The major debate, I'll kind of leave there. What we should look in people to say if they are filled with the Spirit is this list here. Not necessarily these other things. And if someone tells you you have to perform a certain gift as evidence of the Holy Spirit, you can come back here and just ask them, then what do we do with this? Anyway. Another thing to note here is you cannot live free without the Spirit. Unless you have the Spirit of God, you cannot actually live spiritually free. And in that discussion there, it does say those who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law against that. You are free. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I think this is one of the best handling of the, um, the gifts of the Spirit. It's stated just so plainly. Thank you, Peter. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Yeah? So if you serve, serve with the strength that God provides. If you speak, Speak the oracles of God. That's it. Everything falls in that category. If you want to know how you're supposed to do that, go to Galatians 5. Do it that way. Maybe if we concentrate on that, it'd be a lot easier. Be a whole lot better. And I say it this way because if we practice in, in this way, if we just actually bring it back to this simplistic kind of idea, that's a whole lot easier for us to check ourselves with and to encourage each other with. Much more can be said, but we won't. I'm going to move on. The indwelling spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we don't have time this morning to go through the entire chapter. We actually see the arrival of the Holy Spirit to those who are waiting in the upper room. Waiting, just like Jesus said. There's a change in the followers of Jesus. Peter preaches this sermon to a crowd and thousands of people hear him. He doesn't put his foot in his mouth. There's clearly a change in Peter. But he preaches a sermon. Thousands of people come to know Jesus. Speaks to a crowd, empowered by the Spirit, speaks to them in languages that they could understand. Their heart languages. 
amazing. And this is because they were then indwelled by the Spirit. The Spirit came and it empowered them, but it didn't leave. It wasn't as if Peter lost the Holy Spirit after that had been accomplished or the other 119 people who'd received it that morning or the thousands of people who received it when they received Christ. The Spirit stayed, stuck around. That indwelling Spirit is different from how the Spirit operated in the Old Testament. Waiting for the work of Christ to be complete before the Spirit could actually come in and stay and live and dwell, Old Testament saints were empowered, empowered to accomplish tasks, but it doesn't talk about the Spirit as one that would come and not leave. You know, we've read a passage where it does talk about the sealing of the Spirit coming, and that's our guarantee. We live in a time where the Holy Spirit comes and it changes how we live. It changes how we do things. And, I, and I'd say this, it, it doesn't just change how we do this, this time on Sunday morning. It's not just that. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Might be in the sticky part of your Bible. Zechariah chapter 4, we read through this here. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now we just get the, the very end nugget here. You read through Zechariah recently? <laughs> Someone said, yeah. Yeah, we just went through it in, in our Bible study. So, um, so yes, some of you have. Uh, look at it, Man, if you ever want to, I don't know, be weirded out? I don't know. Have a good time? I don't know. Read through Zechariah, because, man, that book's weird. Um, there's a lot of visions, and they are crazy. One of the visions in there is weird, but I think directly applies to what we're talking about now, and I don't think we'd really pick up on it. I'm going to give you the, the shortened version of that. This is a whole sermon and a half on itself, but uh, or on its own. Zechariah chapter 4, we have uh, Zechariah receiving this, this vision. And what he sees is he sees a big golden lampstand, or a, a menorah. Uh, which I'm sure we, we can visualize. Big, old, big, big, big one, right? Uh, there was one like this in the, in the temple. Interestingly enough, it was supposed to represent the tree of life. That's how it looked. It's this big old menorah, right? And what goes on top of a menorah in each one of the little branches? They're branches. I guess they're branches. If you have a different technical term, you can tell me. But what goes on top of each one of those? A light, a candle, or in this case, they didn't have candles, or they had lamps, right? Oil lamps. What would be put in an oil lamp? Not a trick question. Oil. Excellent. Good job. You can feel good about yourselves now. The, so you've got this thing. So he has this vision of this big old menorah here. And next to the menorah, on both sides, you have olive trees. What grows on olive trees? Oh, you guys are batting a thousand a day. Olives grow on the olive tree. What's interesting is, in the temple, every day as part of temple practice, they would refill the lamps for the day. The lights wouldn't go out. They would just perpetually be lit. Throughout the Old Testament, 
oil has come to represent the Spirit. So even in the anointing of, of kings, prophets, priests, they would apply oil. The picture being the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task. So Zechariah sees this menorah, two trees with olives, right? It goes on olive trees. And from those, there, from those trees, there are these pipes going up into this big receptacle. And all this oil is is going in here, and there's 49 pipes going to all of these, seven to each one of these little lamps. It's, it's, it's a weird Hebrew construction thing, but there's seven going to each one. The point being, is that menorah ever gonna run out of oil? Never, it can't. It has the source. Well, yeah, it has two sources, feeding it. That, that idea is, it'll never, ever, run out. In fact, this lamp will never ever need that much oil. If it's constantly being fed, and you'll never need that much. And then the interpretation of the vision is given, and the interpretation is, this is for the practice. This is, or sorry, not practice. This is for the, uh, the task that Zerubbabel has. Do you know who Zerubbabel is? It's a great baby name. Write it down. Zerubbabel is a really cool figure that we don't talk about enough, but Zerubbabel, if they still had the kings after the exile, he would have been king. He was in the lineage of David. Zerubbabel was tasked with going to the big old pile of rubble. It's in his name. Going to that pile of rubble and removing that pile of rubble that was out on Mount Moriah to enable the rebuilding of the temple. The situation was really sad because they'd all been sent back there with materials to do this. They built the walls like we see in Nehemiah. The priests were doing their thing, but the building of the temple, they didn't accomplish right away. They actually used up a lot of the materials in building their own houses, rebuilding other structures. So this was a task given to the rebel to go and to accomplish this thing. Well, the question is, how in the world is Zerubbabel going to accomplish this? Zechariah 4.6 is the answer. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In Zechariah 3, there's also a vision for the high priest Joshua. The high priest Joshua is supposed to be the spiritual leader. Yet when he stands before the Lord, he stands before the Lord in dirty clothes, an angel comes and gives him new clothes. That's the vision that he sees. So the priest needs to work on his holiness before the Lord, his heart before the Lord. The one who's supposed to build a building is given the spirit. I think we probably would have flip-flopped those and said probably the person in charge of construction probably needs to work on their heart and probably the person who is supposed to be the spiritual leader is the one who should receive the spirit. We see there is a reversal. All that to say, we sometimes so pigeonhole the spirit. The spirit does these things. And then we go to other tasks and we say, I'm going to trust my talents and experience and other things for me to accomplish it. Well, God wants us to see 
a few different things. One, the Spirit is supposed to be a part of all aspects of our life. Every task given to us by the Lord can only be accomplished by His Spirit, including the physical ones. The other is, we have enough Holy Spirit. I hear, I've, I hear people pray it, God give me more of your Holy Spirit. Well, if Zerubbabel has two olive trees, you know, if the task that they have has two olive trees worth of spirit, massive receptacle, never running out, do you think that we who have the indwelling Holy Spirit need more Holy Spirit? Does God only give some portion? Does he give you some? You, you get a little bit, you get more. Because I can't find that passage. What I do see is we need to surrender more of ourselves to the Spirit. More of what we have needs to be opened up to Him. More of what we accomplish, we need the application of the Spirit. More of what we're tasked with, we need to trust that the Lord is going to provide power, spiritual power, even physical, via the Spirit. I think sometimes we forget that Samson was this massively strong dude by the Spirit. He wasn't, he didn't look like He-Man. Holy Spirit came upon him, and he did physical, amazing things. I'm not saying, well, maybe it is a spiritual gift. I don't know. Let me know. If someone is gifted that way, I'd love to see it. But all that to say, we can't pigeonhole the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does only certain things. If the Lord has given you the indwelling spirit, you have enough Holy Spirit. You have more than you can ever want or need, ever. What the Lord needs is more of you. More of you surrendered. Some thoughts. I was sharing with John the other day how much I was really being impacted by preparing for this message and the implications of this are just staggering to me. I kind of want to walk through some of those with you. I don't have necessarily things all polished up because you know what I was realizing was this is just as much for me as anyone else. And I definitely can't speak from, from a position of having arrived anywhere. But questions, maybe, maybe just write these questions down and think about it. I pray that you guys would talk about it and this would be something you encourage each other with or just have good conversations. But do we live in light of the reality of the indwelling? Do we really, do we think about it? The indwelling means that wherever we go, whatever we're involved in, we bring the presence of God with us. Like we were looking at before, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Solomon dedicated the temple, there was a rush of the presence of God into the temple to the point where no one could go inside. It was too glorious. And we carry with us the indwelling spirit. We are the temple. So what does that mean to be empowered for every good work, to be equipped? What it really means is that the leading of the spirit, along with the purposes that we're given as we just live life, means that we never walk aimlessly. Things don't just happen to us without a thought or a purpose from the Lord. They are to direct us, to give us opportunities to live out this empowerment, this equipping. We're never a victim of time 
or chance. We are instead the equipped soldiers of the Lord, ambassadors of the Lord, ministers of the Lord, who are presented with opportunities. That's who we are. And some of us may never see the opportunities that people in other countries, cultures, situations will see, yet it's the same Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. If the Lord's leading you to do something, don't talk yourself out of it. We do that. No, oh, that's not going to mean anything. Oh, the Lord doesn't need me to do that. Don't snuff it out. We were made from dirt. That's where human beings are. We were given the spirit. We were made alive. That's amazing to think about. But we do, do we live in light of these things? When we come here on a Sunday morning, you might be in a few different camps. One, do you expect that there will be something that the Lord is going to do? Some of us just come and we are here. We do things, not like we do bad things. We don't even really expect the Lord to show up. Or maybe you're in the camp where you do expect the Lord to show up and he shows up, but then he stays here. This hour and a half, two hours that we spend together. Is that all? Is that it? When we wake up on a Sunday morning, we have an expectation that God's going to show up. Do we wake up on a Monday morning with an expectation that God's going to show up? He's going to show up at work. He's going to show up in that meeting. He's, do we expect it? Or do we leave the Holy Spirit here? Refuge, what are, what are we doing? What are we doing? Are we, are we doing the things that God has called us to do? Do we get together on a Sunday morning and we share the things that God has led us to do throughout the week? What is God doing in your life? What's God doing in your family? Or do we forget what this time is for? This is the special assembly of God's people. This isn't the totality of what God does. God brings someone in your life. Oh, I should bring them to church on Sunday. No, you bring the presence of God to them. I just don't know if I know enough. Go no more. <laughs> go, go read. Go get ready. Go make yourself ready to do what God's called you to do. How do you like that? Go no more. That was. The Spirit was sent to us who are the recipients of God's grace to set us apart for the world, but for what? To accomplish what? What specific things? Do we talk that way to each other? Do we encourage each other that way? What is God doing? What is God doing in your life that he can't do with anyone else? Not that he, not that he can't, but he wants to use you. He has tasked you to do it, that if you don't show up, God's going to have to reassign, and then we miss out. Do we need encouragement? What is God calling us to do? Because when I say these things, I don't say these things to make us feel bad. I instead want to say we should be talking about these things to, to encourage each other, to bring it back up, to talk about it. God calls us followers to do great things, amazing things. So what are those things? Build a building like Zerubbabel? Raise an army like Gideon? Stare down giants 
like the tribes of Israel and the conquest, speak before governors and officials like Peter and John and Paul, declare the truth when you die well, like Stephen? What are we supposed to do? I don't know exactly what it is for you all individually, but I know what it is for all of us who follow Jesus. Is we're supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be those whom God uses in the world. We're supposed to, okay, so on, on, on Monday morning, so this is your challenge tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, start your day in such a way that the kingdom of darkness quakes. They're afraid because we finally woke up on Monday. And wherever we go, we're bringing the Spirit. Wherever we're being directed by the Lord. We're supposed to be ambassadors of the kingdom. Which also leads to this. If we're ambassadors of a kingdom where we're going to a kingdom that is filled with darkness, our enemy, we should get some, some pushback. Just like ambassadors who go to an enemy country will get a little pushback at least. Some of us, we can't really state tr- like in trials. Maybe, maybe we can. I'm not saying we don't all have trials, but... I don't think any of us would fall in the category of the persecuted. Or we'd say our trials are actually tribulation. And yet that's what's promised to us by our Lord, that we will experience those things. So is it that we don't experience those things because the enemy just doesn't see his attacks as being worth it? Maybe the enemy just lets us kind of live in a, in, a, in a moderately good life, leaves us alone to our own devices so that we just stay on our own devices over here and never have any sort of impact. Sometimes we see trial coming into our life as a reason to stop, and yet we should see it as maybe that's where we need to go. Maybe that's where we're having an effect. I'm obviously speaking in generalities, these are conversations we should have with each other specifically. Jesus promised that he'd always be with us. The promises of our Savior, salvation from wrath, the empowering of the Spirit, we should be dangerous to darkness. Some of us worry about sending our kids to school. Different impacts they might have culturally or mean. People who are mean. Man. School should be scared when we unleash our kids on them. Because they bring, they bring the gospel. And they bring power. And they bring trouble. In a spiritual good way. You know what I mean. From all directions, wherever we're going, the people of God should relentlessly bring the gospel of truth into the darkness. That's why the indwelling works. God deposits the Holy Spirit in us, and then wherever we go, he goes. There's no weapon that could prosper against us. Whether we live... It's to Christ. If we die, it's to our benefit. We gain. There's literally nothing the enemy can do ever to us that doesn't work together for our victory in light of the gospel.
So in this life, we're supposed to, to live it. We're supposed to live bold, fearless. Kindness that's courageous, peace that's tenacious, gentleness, gentleness that is intimidating to others who would seek to abuse us. Are we ready? Are we ready to do this? Are we ready? Let me hear it. For any of you who said yes and all of a sudden feel immediately convicted, like, I don't know, that's okay. You are equipped. We are together. We need to live in light of that. Once we start doing that, we can live lives that we're supposed to. We're leaving this building. We're moving. We're living this, this kind of life where wherever we go, we bring the presence of God with us. So let's think about that. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we, as your children, as your people, God, that we would live lives that are fitting for the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. Lord, I pray we encourage each other. I know it's going to be weird initially. It's going to feel weird. But Lord, I pray that we would work through the awkward and we would encourage each other, Lord, to live out what we are supposed to live. With the gifts that you've given, the talents you've given, God, I pray that we would be your people wherever you send us. We would encourage each other, we'd love each other, and we'd live in light of this idea that we believe in the Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.